When you think about disinformation in its purest form, what we're really talking about is people telling lies and hiding who they are in order to achieve objectives and doing so in a deliberate and malicious way. I think that this is more insidious than malware. I think it's more pervasive than traditional cyber attacks, but I don't think that you can separate disinformation from cybersecurity. This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. Our main story today is about disinformation. In 2021, the former director of the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, a man named Chris Krebs, said something rather interesting to the news outlet Axios. He said about businesses, quote, you've either been the target of a disinformation attack or you are about to be, end quote. The timing of this statement surprised me because this was right in the middle of the summer of 2021, July 16th, 2021 to be exact, and that date kind of matters because exactly two weeks prior, many Many cybersecurity professionals around the world had learned about and were responding to one of the worst ransomware attacks in modern history. On the July 4th holiday weekend of 2021, the R-Evil ransomware gang struck a company called Kaseya, exploiting a vulnerability in its remote monitoring and management tool and disrupting not only Kaseya, but more than one thousand of Kaseya's business customers. I remember working that weekend to provide updates to the Mauerbytes Labs blog, and looking back now, we posted new information at times as early as 4.30 a.m., and now I am supposed to be retroactively learning from Chris Krebs that the actual threat to businesses was disinformation? I frankly didn't believe it. But then I looked. And yeah, okay, yeah, disinformation was happening. It has been happening, actually. There are big moments in disinformation that reach national news. Like, arguably, the claims repeated by Fox News against Dominion voting systems following the 2020 presidential election. Claims that only this year, in 2023, led to a $790 million settlement from Fox. There was the bizarre conspiracy against the online furniture company Wayfair, which alleged that the company's highly priced storage cabinets, which were named after women, revealed secret participation in child trafficking. And look, I don't know how to explain that one without going into a rabbit hole, so that one sentence is going to have to suffice. But beyond those moments, there are many smaller, targeted disinformation campaigns that we don't necessarily notice. Take these examples from a 2021 report from the consulting and professional services firm PricewaterhouseCoopers. Quote, In one notable instance of disinformation, a forged U.S. Department of Defense memo 
stated that a semiconductor giant's planned acquisition of another tech company had prompted national security concerns, causing the stocks of both companies to fall. In other incidents, widely publicized, unfounded attacks on a businessman caused him to lose a bidding war. A false news story reported that a bottled water company's products had been contaminated. And a foreign state's TV network falsely linked 5G to adverse health effects in America, giving the adversaries' companies more time to develop their own 5G network to compete with U.S. business, end quote. Today, to help us understand the threat of disinformation to businesses, what tools we have to detect and disrupt it, and what companies can do to prepare, we're speaking with Lisa Kaplan, CEO and founder of Aletheia. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for coming on. We are excited to have you as well uh, because this is a booming topic and something that has been happening for two years, unbeknownst to my own knowledge. And I wanted to dig into kind of what I just started at the intro with, right? With uh, Chris Krebs, the director of CISA, saying that you've either been the target of a disinformation attack or you are about to be, right? I said that that surprised me, but I think it's a really good moment to capture on that surprise and kind of find out, okay, what is the scope then of disinformation? You know, I'm, I'm kind of trying to figure out how many attacks, if we even have a number, I, I don't know if we could, uh, where do they take place, who has been hit, who will be hit? This is all questions about what is the scope of disinformation, but also a more entertaining way to ask that question is simply, is Chris Krebs right? <laughs> well, I think Chris Krebs is right, and I, I appreciate that he's been saying that since he's gotten out of government. I mean, we've been working on this issue since 2019, and I actually cut my teeth on this matter um, on a Senate campaign in 2018. And I tell people that the funny thing about 2018 is it was after 2016. So disinformation was a word that was being thrown around a lot. Look, I think when you think about disinformation in its purest form, what we're really talking about is people telling lies and hiding who they are in order to achieve objectives and doing so in a deliberate and malicious way. I think that this is more insidious than malware. I think it's more pervasive than traditional cyber attacks, but I don't think that you can separate disinformation from cybersecurity because when you think about it, especially in the case of state actors, it's all the same bad guys and sorry, bad women too, in the same <laughs> office building, but different office suites. It's part of a coordinated strategy. And so I think that when you're asking what's the scope, I do think that it's a little bit like the next generation of the age old saying, if you're interesting, you have the Chinese in your systems. Um, and it's a question of whether or not you know about it. Um, it's just it's fast, cheap and easy to do. So we're seeing that there are more and more actors getting in the game. We're seeing that every company, every organization, even individuals are becoming targets of this type of attack. The good news is because, you know, I like to think of myself as an optimist and I wouldn't be in this business otherwise. There's actually something that you can do about disinformation. You don't have to wait until your stock price is tanking or there's a run on a bank or all of a sudden, you know, gas stations are running on empty. There's a lot that can be done to proactively detect disinformation and do so early 
before it poses an organizational risk. Let's dive into that immediately, right? Because it's also something that interests me greatly, right? Because um, in malware, we don't just look for the malware, right? As a kind of really brief explainer, it's not that we're just looking for a piece of code that is malicious or a file that is malicious. We're looking for behavior, right? We've learned that there's actually behavior that uh, precedes the delivery of malware. And that could be, you know, breaking in through someone's like RDP ports or using an expired set of account credentials um, or pretty much, you know, one that hasn't been retired, even though it should have been. And so again, this is all just to say that there are there are precursors to malware. And when you speak uh, now about, you know, you can actually prepare for disinformation, I get the same sort of vibe here. And so what is disinformation preparation? Great question. And so I think a lot of this really, and let's take, you know, 30 seconds, if you can indulge me to do the boring definitional thing, (laughs) and then we can move on to the more interesting stuff. Yeah. yeah, But um, so disinformation, it's the deliberate and coordinated spread of falsehoods. In order to be able to have a coordinated spread, you have to build a network, a network of websites, of social media accounts, of fake pages to be able to disseminate this information at scale. What actors are doing is it takes time to build those networks. It takes time to engage audiences because the way those networks get deployed and the the purpose of um, and kind of the nature of the TTPs or tactics, techniques, and procedures mm-hmm. used to be able to deploy these campaigns involve essentially hacking the curation algorithm. So what that means is, you know, these actors will use these fake assets to, or sometimes known over propaganda outlets like RT and others to be able to deploy false and misleading information in such a way that it tells the curation algorithm, hey, this topic over here is newsy, so show it to more people. And so those disinformation actors who have then weaponized information using these accounts to spread it are then relying, frankly, upon real people to spread misinformation. So misinformation is when you may think it's true. You may believe it. You're not part of a disinformation campaign. You are not an agent of the Chinese government, but you're spreading this information because it's newsy. It's interesting. You're warning people. And all of that takes place really rapidly. But building networks takes time. And so if you are proactively looking for these networks, if you are actively seeking to understand what your information ecosystem looks like, you can actually get out in front of this threat, but you need that predictive insight to be able to then execute upon a plan. So then that gets us into the question of, okay, well, knowing things is cool, but what do you actually do about it? And so going back to your original question, how do you prepare? You have to understand what's right for your organization. So typically we see organizations take a combination of different strategies and it always depends on what's actually going on, right? So for example, there are legal actions that you can take if a disinformation network is causing damages, trying to manipulate your stock price and value and cause a a short attempt. If there's a threat of violence that's become part of this disinformation effort, you know, in the absence of an incident requiring a legal response, you don't take a legal response. So we really have to let the data drive the findings, but typically it falls to 
cybersecurity teams, physical security teams, um, communications teams, legal teams, and government affairs teams to be able to execute that holistic strategy against this distributed risk. What do, because this idea of networks, I never considered it like that, right? Obviously, they have to, disinformation campaigns rely on the spinning up of networks, which requires developing fraudulent websites, things that are meant to look real. What does detecting networks, what does that look like? Like, is it, I guess what I'm asking here is, does it look like, okay, we're looking at Twitter and we see that a bunch of new accounts have been created and they're all parroting the same tweet? Is it that same type of activity maybe on LinkedIn or Facebook or Instagram? Or how do you detect the creation of websites because there's like a bill like billions made in the time it takes to like record this podcast so yeah what is detecting a network look like how is that done great question so we start by and this is where we've taken the traditional threat intelligence model which is great for some of the risks that you referenced earlier but it we flipped it on its head a little bit so instead of starting with the actor and looking at what are their assets doing and giving people the early warning signal that way, we start by looking at the organization. And what we do is we create a series of queries so that we can understand the conversations that are happening. And within those conversations, we take a multi-channel analysis approach to essentially put content into narratives. By doing this, we understand what's out there, what's the risk. You know, is there somebody out there saying that the Malwarebytes podcast is the best, best podcast ever? Great. Is there somebody out there saying that by listening to the Malwarebytes podcast, you are actually going to be putting malware onto your devices and therefore you should stop listening to it? We've got a problem. And so within those narratives, we then look for what we call, and, um, you know, everybody get ready to chuckle as you're listening to this podcast instead of indicators of compromise, indicators of coordination. Um, So essentially what we do is we've trained based on our proprietary understanding and data sets, and our team has been able to develop coordination models to look for where is that coordinated activity occurring within different data sets. And so that's how we're able to identify networks proactively and how we make sure that we're helping organizations get out in front of this threat so that they're not waiting for it to come to them. One thing just to mention, it's not always the Russians. I don't know if you've heard, but they're a little busy right now. Um, (laughs) There are a variety of different actors who are, you know, launching these types of attacks. And so I think that the other important thing is just always letting the data really drive what you decide to do about mitigating a certain type of risk. I think we've talked so much about risk and about consequences kind of briefly, right? We we mentioned, you know, maybe there's a campaign to lower a company's stock price. Maybe there are, uh, there's a campaign to, like you said, uh, make it seem as though listening to Lock and Code gives you malware. Maybe I'm behind that campaign. Who knows? Maybe I'm a secret. Are you? You want to give something to tell us? I I am not. Uh, Even jokingly, I can't. (laughs) But, (laughs) But I think it gives us a moment to dig in for folks who maybe haven't been the target of a disinformation campaign or who also think, oh, this isn't something I have to worry about. And so my question here is, what are the consequences? What could happen? What has happened because of disinformation? It's a great question. 
One of the key things that we often get called in to help with are short seller attacks. And so one that I can actually talk about because we we caught it out in the wild is we noticed an inauthentic network that was essentially being operated in such a way that it um, was attempting to, we think, uh, manipulate oxygen stock price. There was some correlation in terms of that network's activity and um, the the way that the stock price moved. Um, But essentially what we were able to see is that online conversations and these networks can essentially encourage people to buy or sell a stock. Being able to get early insight into that is obviously really important and is going to save your organization a lot of headache. And that way you can get the insight that this may happen prior to finding out because you know, your CFO's hair is on fire. And so what it does is it enables organizations to one, not have to lose focus on what they're supposed to be focused on, two, protect their stock price, and three, be able to solve these problems before they become a level 10 crisis. So that's one example. Another example is we, I think the Wayfair example is a classic. So there were warning signs that that whole narrative that you referenced and that Wayfair was allegedly trafficking children was taking place in QAnon circles long before it actually took off. The key part with early detection and what most organizations, if they're only using a social listening tool and repurposing it for this use case are missing is the context. So Wayfair may have had insight that this was happening. They would have seen it as a low level conversation, low volume, negative sentiment, but probably didn't worry too much about it. (laughs) What they didn't probably realize is that a hundred posts from a very motivated online QAnon community to be able to wreak havoc on a corporation is very different than a hundred posts from low follower accounts on Twitter. And so that's another piece where that multi-channel analysis approach and understanding of the communities becomes really important in helping your organization to be able to know when to take an action versus when to watch and wait. We've talked about a couple of different types of companies that have been targets, right? And I'm trying to see the patterns between them and I can't. And I think the reason for that is the question I'm asking is, can anyone be a target, right? Because I think there's probably a lot of folks out there listening who are thinking to themselves, well, why would anyone want to disrupt our stock price? You know, we're not involved in mergers and acquisitions activity. Like who's going to benefit from that? We don't have a weird rogue investor who's trying to, that would be interesting if I'm just trying to think that through right now, just a rogue investor who's trying to yeah, destroy a stock price. Yeah, we've seen that one before too. It's, wow. uh, okay. Those ones are brutal. <laughs> so yeah. I think to your question though, Everybody who has an online presence is a target. We see everybody from election officials being targeted with threats of violence because the disinformation about them has gotten so bad to companies having to defend their stock price, their executives, their brand and reputation. We see this used as a form of social engineering. It's important to be able to catch these things so that you can block some of those domains on your systems. And then um, it's important threat intelligence when you're looking at sophisticated adversaries who may be spinning up a disinformation network to be able to disseminate information. And that could be an early warning signal that there's about to be a breach attempt. So those are the sorts of things that we've noticed, because the reality is, What we're doing is we're identifying information and online threats created outside your systems. 
And so to stop that from coming in and out of your systems, you need to also know that it's out there. So any organization with an online presence is a potential target. (laughs) Oh, so that's everyone. Okay, good to know. Everyone. (laughs) Something you mentioned really quickly there is that um, some companies may be missing context with something as simple as like a social listening tool. And I wanted to know... How do you fix that, <laughs> right? I, I guess I'm trying to say, cause, because it does feel like a social listening tool is something that every company of a certain maturity uh, with an online presence would have. But it seems like that, you know, it could be used for just sentiment, you know, like a, like a, like a PR team would have a social listening tool and they'd say like, oh yeah, you know, things are going pretty well today. And then like you said, we have a couple of, you know, a low level number, a low quantity of posts alleging a completely bizarre conspiracy, but those people are just getting like the final data point there, which is that a post has been made, a very sort of binary kind of understanding rather than seeing, okay, a post has been made and a post has been made and a post has been made and this is within a network of a thriving conspiracy community, like you said, QAnon. And so what I'm asking then is like, how do you get context? (laughs) Yeah, no, it's a great question. So here's what social listening tools are great for. They're great for understanding, are people talking positively about your brand? How is your advertising campaign doing? What are the relative mentions and where do you have stakeholders across the social media platforms? What they were never designed to do is to be able to identify new online risks. So they're designed to tell you when something's already trending, but by the time it's trending, you've missed the moment to be able to be proactive and avoid the crisis in the first place. To get that context, I think, you need a new generation tool if you want to handle this in-house. And I, I would advise anybody right now who's using a social listening tool to look beyond just the metrics. Really understand what are those communities and what are the types of threats and also understand where your data gaps are. Do you have access to sites outside of Twitter? Twitter obviously shares its API pretty freely with anybody who's willing to pay for it at this point um, since the public API has disappeared. But... Um, I think a lot of people have really good Twitter coverage, but again, actors aren't seeding narratives on Twitter in the same way. They're using the whole of internet as we talked about. So being able to pull in more data is also really critical to be able to do early detection. Something that you had just mentioned right there, right? That social listening tools, they're really good at sort of detecting the after, you know, um, by the time that you recognize something, it's already too late. And that reminds me quite a bit of something that a panelist at RSA who spoke with you at RSA, uh, Yuel Roth, he previously worked at Twitter and a quote that he gave, which blew me away is that quote, over 90% of impressions happen in the first three hours of a Twitter post, end quote. And so I'm particularly interested in that because it goes to show that the attention of a thing online happens so, so quickly. And so then I'm wondering, how do you find success in combating a disinformation campaign? Because it feels like, right, you can't take back views. You know, you can't take back the fact that I saw a tweet. And there's famously problems about people seeing disinformation being debunked and that it doesn't happen at the same rate and people don't read it at the same rate. And so the kind of big question here is, what is success when so much of a campaign, of a disinformation campaign is simply getting it out there, like spreading it? 
Yeah. So I think this leads to a very important point, which is the only people who can decide what the Russian and the Chinese government are going to do are the Russian and the Chinese government. (laughs) I say that up front. (laughs) I oftentimes have to counsel people. We don't control them. But here's what I would say. We've seen, I would say, a couple different types of disinformation attacks. So sometimes it does start with a tweet on Twitter and it goes viral and it may not even be disinformation. So the famous example of this is there was one tweet. It was not nefarious. It was just like some guy who essentially took a video of then House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and slowed it down to make it look as though she were intoxicated and it got posted. Right. I remember that. And then, yeah, it was like what I think it was one of the first times that we had seen that there was also the Jim Acosta moment where the video was actually sped up, I believe, to make it look like he was like hitting a aide who was trying to take a microphone away. So we've seen those types of manipulations before. When that happens, are you going to necessarily be able to attribute where the account is coming from? Not necessarily. What, so what would the things that we would look for be and what are your mitigation options? So one, we actually don't get into the business of whether or not something like that is true because it really only matters if you want to take a legal action. So let's say the content that's being put out there is not true. It is false and defamatory, all of these other things. That's when you get more into the Dominion Fox News kind of a situation where there's a lawsuit. The other implications of that were Fox News was then putting on the lower third, you know, we do not stand by this statement if there were conspiracies being said online, which is another type of interstitial to kind of slow down or at least cause some doubt. The other thing, too, is in those situations, you can also add more context and be able to flip the script. So fact checking doesn't work anymore. But being able to say, this is where information is coming from. This is why it was posted. This is who's behind it. And this is what's really happening. That does work. So there's kind of more of a second day strategy. The other type of attack that we see is that we start seeing attacks that are, you know, planned not on Twitter. Twitter is oftentimes the goal for some of these actors. So since the 2016 election, the major social media platforms like meta platforms, Twitter, Reddit, others, have actually invested resources into making sure that their platforms are catching some of this manipulation. They're really only looking at their own platforms, which is why it's important to be able to look across the open web. But because of that, actors, since this is a dynamic space, also are using other parts of the internet. And so being able to look at what are some of these online conspiracy communities saying, what are some of the narratives that are currently being seeded can help you to get out in front of it. So that's where the early detection piece comes in. So sometimes, for example, if somebody's trying to manipulate your stock price and it moves over to Twitter and works, it was actually starting on another platform that was smaller, where there was less of a reach. And so those are the two different types of attacks that we see. The third instance would be when they blend together. So sometimes what will happen is maybe it starts on Twitter or a mainstream platform and you and your company think it went away because you don't have access to some of these smaller platforms that a lot of these conversations are taking place, but the narrative continues and then it reemerges in a new way. It metastasizes and you get caught off guard and caught by surprise when you would have been able to identify what was happening and take steps to change the situation or prevent it 
from really taking off again by getting out in front of it. There was something you said that I accepted as fact, but also was like, oh, there's such a story in there. And it was that fact checking doesn't work anymore. And when you said it, I was like, oh yeah, that's right. That's uh, yep, uh, yep. But then I was like, I can't believe we have that statement existing today and that it's true. And so I wanted to dive into that and say, okay, so did it ever work? And two, why doesn't it work? Did it ever work is a good question. And my hypothesis is it worked prior to social media. So when you think about how we used to consume information and it was predominantly driven by news that has an editorial process or a standard, issuing a correction for a reporter is a very big deal and then everybody sees it the next day. So I think that's when fact-checking used to work. Now, because of the way the internet works and because essentially we're all living in our own echo chambers. And what I mean by that is We all have our own curation algorithms that show us the content that the curation algorithm thinks we want to see. If we are targeted by a disinformation narrative, we may never actually see a fact check. And then the other thing too is disinformation targets our biases. So it targets us based on what we're predisposed to believe and coming in and saying, hey, this thing that you you believe, it's not true, is not as effective with populations, like if you went to a true QAnon believer and you said, there is no deep state cabal, that's not going to change their mind. (laughs) But if you pick a certain incident and you add more context, so here's a hypothetical. Let's say that there's a CCP affiliated network targeting AT&T because they're in competition with Huawei. Well, if that narrative starts working, and people start believing whatever is being said, and they're switching their service from AT&T to Huawei, coming in and saying, you know, that's not true, may not work. Coming in and adding the context of, this is being spread by the Chinese government because of, you know, all of the reasons associated with them um, trying to promote Huawei, and you've been fooled by them. The universal counter message is nobody likes to be fooled. And so what research shows coming out of um, Harvard, and particularly by Jed Willard, is that being able to add that additional context opens up the opportunity to be able to provide accurate information. That is such a advanced understanding of, of a universal problem happening every day that it's astounding in how simple it is, but also I assume how much research has gone into finding that conclusion. The idea that we don't like being fooled, that that creates an opportunity for peeling off of being a target of a disinformation campaign, peeling off of holding something that isn't true. It's kind of cool. Like, it's, I'm optimistic. It is. <laughs> yes. And there's other great, there's some really great organizations out there. So one of my favorite is this organization called One America Movement. And it's a, it's a coalition of faith leaders. Everybody from Lutherans to rabbis to, you know, pick your religion under the sun. And one of the things that they've been looking at is how do you bring people back from some of these conspiracy theories? And what are the other touch points, including religion, which, you know, is declining in overall populations, but like, there's, there's a real opportunity to be able to say, okay, but like, yes, 
QAnon might be right, but isn't God more right? And being able to have those conversations and kind of bring people back, it's, it worked with de-radicalization as well. And so a lot of those opportunities, I think, still exist for also bringing people back into the fold. So there's some great work that's being done in this space. That's encouraging to hear, first of all. That's great. Um, but I also wanted to move this to detecting disinformation at scale. Because so much of what I have learned about detecting disinformation has felt very much like the same rules that I use for detecting phishing, which is to say it's a lot of user education and there's a lot of trust that has to go into the individual. Uh, This sort of, okay, I know what to look for. I know how to do it on an ad hoc basis, depending on the content that comes up on my screen. And so that is very difficult to bring at scale as we have learned from phishing because the because we still don't we still haven't figured that one out by the way. Like we just that's the problem. The problem is that people click on links and they enter information that they shouldn't into fraudulent websites. And the other problem you know- is passwords. Cybersecurity would be so easy if not for the people, is what I like to say. And it's true. I mean, so I think this is a really important point. But I think with disinformation, it's a little bit different. So yes, like you absolutely need to teach people how to identify the signs and symptoms of disinformation. How do you think critically about your social media feed? That way, organizations can potentially prevent their people from making a decision they wouldn't have otherwise made because of disinformation. Famous example, and like this is where we're all susceptible, I'm going to share a time that I believe disinformation, was Mm -hmm. at the beginning of the pandemic, there was that rumor that we were going to go into a two-week lockdown, right? (laughs) And I was like... Oh God. And I got it. I was living, I'm, you know, I like used to work on Capitol Hill. I had this friend and there was this like copy paste text message that was going around and I had a friend summarize it and a friend who would have known and sent it to me and been like, warn everybody. And it caused a run on the grocery stores. Like this was a yeah. literal thing that happened. We couldn't yeah. buy pasta and toilet paper specifically yeah. because everybody was freaking out. Right. Gosh, we yeah. saw similar things with bank runs recently. We saw similar things yeah. with colonial pipeline. So this Mm -hmm. is something that's a real effect of disinformation. That's the kind of thing. Then, of course, it comes out. And I had at this point already called like my entire family to be like, go buy pasta and toilet paper. So I was part of the problem. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But I think the reality is like there is an information consumer education that has to happen. And that's going to take time. That'll be done through, you know, I'm sure our school systems, like what we're seeing the Europeans do now. It'll be done through, I think, a lot of philanthropic work, and it's super important. That addresses how people perceive disinformation. The other piece, though, and going back to your question of, like, how do you do this at scale? This goes back to how do you identify the networks in the first place? And it requires a lot of data. It requires being able to look for patterns and anomalies in that data to identify where it's occurring and then how do you get out in front of it. And by the way, the two are are interconnected because the more we learn on the detection side, the more we can teach in schools, in our communities about how to protect yourself from disinformation. But disinformation is about manipulation at scale. And so to be able to catch it at scale, you have to have the technology and the insights to know that it's happening in the first place. I think 20 years ago, we wouldn't have expected that 
malware, that ransomware, that everything that infects a device, uh, people that hack devices, that that was going to become a sort of line item for just, it's the cost of doing business today online, that you have to have a cybersecurity product or set of products to protect you from this. And I'm wondering, are we headed the same way with disinformation? Will it will it become so widespread, let's say 10, 15, 20 years down the line, where you simply have to have a defense for it? And so my question is kind of two parts. Are we approaching that future? And if we are, what can businesses do today to prepare for that? I think we are. Is the short answer. You know, you yeah. talk about phishing. I think of it, what we are building right now is very similar to the first generation of firewalls. How do you even understand what's being out there coming in and out of your systems? I would say that what we've started to see, and so I started this company in 2019, and let me tell you, that was way too early. Um, people <laughs> looked at me like I was crazy. Um, they were like, um, I felt like I was trying to tell like cigarette smokers in the 70s, like, hey, you should really stop or buy health insurance. Like, it was way too early. And I think, like, the reality is after the 2020 elections and the pandemic, Savvy companies, savvy boards started saying, okay, this might be an issue for us. Who's, who has that like crazy girl's business card who came in and talked to us about like QAnon? Um, and now what we're seeing in the market, they're like, I'm serious. Like that's when it, like, I think people started actually recognizing this as a threat. I think what we've started to see and just my experience out and talking to people is this isn't something that they've budgeted for, but even in this economy, it's something that they will find budget for because more and more people have been targeted. I think what we're learning is that now when I hop on the phone with people, they're like, would you have been able to help me in this situation? Um, So it is impacting everyone. And so my message to people who are like, what can we do about this now? And just knowing how close the cybersecurity community is, I think one thing that's been great is seeing how disclosures around breaches and has really um, enabled some information sharing. If you're experiencing something that's kind of weird on the disinformation front, chances are you have a peer who has also dealt with it. So I think one thing I would say is like definitely reach out to the community. Like you don't have to reinvent the wheel. There is a playbook for organizations. The other thing I would say is like, really understand what your data gaps are and what your vulnerabilities are. If you're not a publicly traded company, you probably don't have to worry about a short seller attempt. But do you have to worry about losing trust of your customers? Do you have to worry about your executives being targeted? Do you have to worry about your team getting targeted? Um, Those are your brand and reputation. Those are the sorts of things that I would start asking is, where are gaps and how are we going to fill them and what resources do we currently have? Throughout the whole conversation, it's been so fun to hear how similar this issue is to very classic ideas of cybersecurity. By that, I mean, you know, we tell folks all the time to do a threat assessment, right? Like what is their threat model? Are they at risk of a ransomware attack because of XYZ, you know, or do they not have to worry about uh, ABC? Do they not have to worry about these things that affect certain industries more than other industries? Um, Are they in a certain vertical that gets targeted by this? Um, Are they critical infrastructure? Are they not? And so much of it is just 
so similar to the advanced conversations that we've been having. I think it took a long time for us to get here. And it's just interesting to hear about a threat that I think you could call a cyber threat, but is not what most people classically understand as one to kind of get back to the idea of 2019 was too early. You know, um, the, you hear the word cyber threat and you're like, what do you mean? What do you mean disinformation? And, you know, you go back many, many years and say, hey, cigarettes will kill you. And they're like, no, they were prescribed to me by my doctor. <laughs> um, it's very novel and it's fun to see the contours of both. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, we apply the same detect, assess, mitigate framework to information that exists outside your systems of your cybersecurity vendor does to information that's coming in and out of your systems. It's one of the reasons why we end up when we work with organizations bringing together cybersecurity, physical security, communications and government affairs and legal teams. It's one of those things that just requires upfront planning, a coordinated response if and when it does happen to you, and then also just making sure that you're prepared by having the right insights to be able to even detect what's happening. Lisa, I wanted to thank you again for coming on today's show and for explaining this topic uh, for everyone. Uh, they might have to worry about it very soon. Um, but again, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on today's thank show. You. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. I appreciate it. To our listeners, we'll talk to you again in two weeks. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Mauerbytes Labs at mauerbytes.com slash blog. Finally, our intro music is by Kevin McLeod from incompetech.com, and our outro music is by Woa from unminus.com. Today's show has been edited by our podcast consultant, Eric Johnson, at lightningpod.fm. Thank you, folks.